Welcome to Let's Get Uncomfortable, a running podcast where we shake out and purposely go off track on any and everything related to our favorite hobby. Get ready to get uncomfortable along with our guests, because growth only happens outside of your comfort zone. Here are your hosts, Ines Babea, Jamie Chen, and Nathan Schiller. Hi, I'm Ines Babea. Hi, I'm Jamie Chen. I'm Nathan Schiller, and welcome to Let's Get Uncomfortable. Our guest today is the founder of Girls Run NYC and an Adidas Runners Performance Coach and Captain. Welcome, Jesse Sapo. On that note, um, we'll start our sports legacy segment. So the modern Summer Olympics began in the year 1896, but women were not invited to the games until 1928. And there they were only able to compete in five athletic events, whereas the men had 22. So today in 2020, it can appear that track and field and running does not exclude on the basis of sex and gender and race. But actually, there's a very recent history of that. And Jesse, to start us off, I was wondering if this history, either specifically or generally, is something that you as a runner and a running coach think about. Is it something that motivates you and guides you? Um, absolutely, it, it does. And I think just to sort of briefly touch on um, Catherine Switzer, who is pr a pretty important figure in um, women's running, was the first woman to officially um, run the Boston Marathon. And we sort of celebrated the 50 year anniversary of that. I think it was three years ago. Um, and when I got to meet her, and also when I read her autobiography, I learned so much about what did not exist for women in running um, that was not that long ago. So I think, you know, like you said, often it seems like it's a very inclusive sport where everyone should feel like they have some ownership over it. But I think that even in very recent history, um, things were, were not that way. And maybe even beyond surface level, things are still not that way. What have you seen, for example? Um, well, I would say for sure, when I started running long distance, um, it was in New York and it was with a group called the Bridge Runners. And I think probably a lot of folks may be familiar with them as, um, I guess, an alternative or sort of counterculture running group that was started by, um, in particular, Mike Sace, who was a nightlife guy. Um, and he was creating a, a space for running for people who did not look like runners um, or who maybe weren't feeling like they were a runner or that they weren't welcome within what was traditionally maybe a running community. Um, and I remember at that time, it was around 2004, 2005, um, I would run, I guess, jog. I didn't consider myself a runner at that time, um, but I would get out and I would run the loop around Prospect Park to try to stay um, like healthy, but also, I guess, for my mental health. And I would never consider joining a running group because I literally did not identify as a runner. Um, and I think that a lot of that had to do with what I saw or who I saw that 
in my mind was runner. And it was like the typical, traditional, stereotypical, like skinny white guy. Um, and I even thinking back to being in sports in high school or junior high, like what I would see as a distance runner, I was like, that's not me. I'm not it. Um, so I think that a lot has changed. A lot has happened and opened up, especially in New York City over the last 15 um, years to make running feel a lot more inclusive um, and, a, and a wider variety of people who do it. Um, but initially, I definitely didn't quite relate to it myself. And I also didn't see a lot of people outside of that stereotypical like cross-country ish person um out running in groups well it's interesting that you mentioned that because we have we've made sure that to bring up that part of the conversation to every episode people talk about you know the inclusivity part of it the representation aspect of it and you mentioned you know the typical runner like like we're bombarding my images there's usually like a skinny white person a man or a woman you know there's there's never like the diversity of bodies so is that a reason, is, is maybe that one of the reasons why you created Girls Run NYC? You know, by the time I created Girls Run, I'd been through quite a, a lot of different running phases. And I think um, I had ran with Bridge Runners for about seven years before I left the group to start a group called Black Roses. And I started that project with um, Knox Robinson. So we created this space to be an additional sort of layer for, I guess, non-traditional runners to get a more, I guess not, I don't wanna say elite, but to get more of like a traditional training program so that they could also take their running to the next level. So, but I, I wonder on, about like just like the women only specific aspect of it. Yes. So, well, to get there, yeah. <laughs> when we started Black Roses, it was supposed to be a women's group. So, I, in my mind, I really wanted like leaving Bridge Runners, I was like, I want to, I want to move into a space that is welcoming for women that feels um, safe for women and that it's like an open space for women to train in because what I saw a lot and I, I hate to like go into like sexism but like what I saw no, a lot you, like you it, get into it this 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 I know. get into it Actually, this is a safe I, space I, for all of that and it's that's, so it's so interesting you said that that's what you envision black roses just to say that what ended up happening was that the intention of where I wanted it to go and then where it ended up going was different. And so, and I loved my time with Black Roses. It was like an amazing initial experience. I think we, where we compromised, we had majority women to begin with and we had a few men, um, but the idea was to create this space um, for women to train and, and it shifted and it had a lot to do with um, differences in opinion in leadership and so I had gotten to Black Roses because I had had this amazing opportunity to really be able to train a group of women within Bridge Runners um, because at the time Nike did this women's race series 
and there was um, a marathon and a half marathon in San Francisco. And so we had trained this group of women in black in bridge runners to run a marathon. And this was like, this was like couch to marathon. It was like not people who were marathoners. It was people not who were couch like- couch to 5K, it was couch to marathon. Exactly. Like for many people, this was like their first marathon, but it was also like their first race. Oh and so, and also like, I was very immature as a runner at that point. So I was just like, yeah, we can do it. You know, and that was always the attitude of bridge runners too, was like, you can run three miles, you can do a half marathon. Um, and the beauty <laughs> that's that was literally how I ran my first mar half marathon was like Sace was like oh yeah you you got you ran six miles like you got this <laughs> and I was like okay um, but the beauty of that is that in that space you don't tell yourself you can't do it so um, you learn pretty quickly that you can but you also learn maybe with some more training it would feel different so essentially like I trained this group of women, we, we did the marathon and I was like, this is it. Like, I love this and I love helping people achieve um, their potential or beyond what they think their potential is. And that was why we created Black Roses because I wanted to keep doing that. And I wanted to like hone in on that. Um, and as you guys probably know with Bridge Runners, it's like, it's once a week, it's pretty, um, you know, it's so open that like it's, it was harder for people to like focus on a specific thing. So for me, like coming to Black Roses was taking that and like narrowing it down and just saying like, all right, cool. So also like come over here and we're gonna like help you train so you can achieve this like bigger thing. So that was like the, the beginning of how I got to Girls Run actually was that did Black Roses, but it was co-ed and it just, there was something that continued to gnaw away at me that I was like, I really just want to create a space that is just for women. Um, and so I created Girls Run two years after that, which was um, almost six years ago now. And, um, and then Girls Run became something totally different because it was not a training group. And I think my experience with Black Roses, I was like, I don't want to create this training group where people are intimidated again to join. And what I do want to create is a space that is removing barriers for people. What, whatever barriers like they were kind of sharing with me, which was like, maybe I'm not good enough. Maybe I'm not fast enough. I haven't ever ran um, like all sorts of different like things that might prevent someone from coming to the sport did those and barriers also like include like race because we also see like you said like when you talk about like the typical female runner which you yeah. see is is a white woman so is that also something that you thought about absolutely um and i think i would say race and ethnicity and also body types and age and abilities like it was kind of like all these different things that might make someone feel like that's not a space for me um and so with girls run as in other the other sort of running spaces i had been in which was bridge runners it was really like we wanted as many different types of women to be able to come together 
and that, that we thought that space was going to be unique. Um, and so one of the unique things about the space is that we did it at a track because what I found was that often in running groups, um, people get left behind. And mm. maybe you might show up because you're interested to see all these people, but then like you don't actually get to run with any of them because you start the run and then they're gone. Um, but then you get to see them at the end if there is like something happening at the end. So to do it on the track was a way for everyone to see each other the whole time. Um, and we also designed it in a way where we open with a circle and we close with a circle. So mm. you get each other's name every time. Even if we all know each other, we say her name every time. And we, we share, there's usually like a prompt in the beginning where we share something. It could be silly or it could be deeply profound. Whatever it is, like it's, we share that and then we run and then we close all together as well. And um, to say that some of the considerations around making it an open space were also like, how to message this out to the public and how that might attract people to the group. So that's always been like a thought of mine. And I think even when I was thinking about what this conversation would be is like how a lot of times the only way you know to join a group is by seeing a, an image on Instagram and whatever that image is, is going to immediately tell you that you want to show up or that you don't want to show up. <laughs> and I think like that's always been, that was at the forefront of starting the group was like how to make it look like a space that could be fun and open and safe and not intimidating. Um, and that also includes like representation of having people see people that look like them that are there in that space well and that just actually brings me to my question so i've seen that you've collaborated with adidas mm -hmm. i think you did an ad campaign i remember seeing your ad on house and street um and then you're one of the leaders of the run group uh with so many brands out there why adidas yes um actually so how I ended up coming to be with Adidas was that they had started a program for women athletes um, right around the time that I had started Girls Run. I think it was maybe like a year later. Um, and they had put a bunch of their resources into building this like group of women athletes who were in this program that they called creators. Everyone's called a creator, right? But and that's super vague. But they brought together these women from around the world and um, essentially like offered us this opportunity to have a contract to be work with Adidas women. Um, and the reason why I think they reached out to me was definitely had to do with my um, leadership in the running space as being a woman coach and having girls run. Um, but I was amongst other people who were like, uh, pro soccer player, a boxer, um, a blogger who has 250,000 followers, like whatever. It was just all these different women. So I actually joined on as an, um, basically an ambassador for Adidas women initially. Um, and that 
sort of opened up other opportunities for me. But the reason why I wanted to work with them was because they were investing in women. And I didn't see a lot of other brands that were doing that at that time, except for Wazelle, who I think has always been a women's brand and has always invested in women. But I also was like, at the same time, like, I love Wazelle. Like, I was looking at what, what Wazelle was doing and how they were disrupting the sports industry. Or I think um, um, Kara Goucher was part of Wazelle at one point when she yes. was um, uh, accusing Salazar. Yes. Of, uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, they've been, if you follow along with Wazelle, like they've been super disruptive in the sportswear industry, which I think is amazing. Um, but yeah, I had this opportunity to work with Adidas Women and, and then from there, it's um, turned into a lot of different things with running and outdoors. Um, but it was, for me, it felt, it felt good to work with them because a lot of what I do has not had to change. Like it's more that I'm being supported and there's some resources around what I do versus me being kind of like stuffed into this agenda um, that they have, so. So I, I'm not familiar with the ad, but I, you said that they, they selected you and a few other people. What did those people look like? Was that group diverse? Yeah, I would say it's. I mean, and I'm, and I'm asking, and I'm asking this is because you know, people always say, "Well, you know, we can't find candidates of color. We can't find people who are interested in coaching. So you end up, we end up just finding people in our circle, which I just, so that's what I'm asking is like, right. how how committed were they to like promoting women, and did they choose? not only people, not, not just you, but people that also like are different from what you look like. Yeah. I mean, I would say diverse in there's, there were definitely a lot of women who were from like various different ethnic backgrounds and also from different parts of the world um, because they were utilizing like these key cities. So it was like, women from London, women from Tokyo, um, New York, LA. So a lot of the sort of bigger markets when you're talking about marketing. But that being said, I would say not super diverse in like body size and shape. And I think that's also unfortunate is that often we're looking at this like very stereotypical, like what is an acceptable or beautiful or fit body and I, I think that is where there was definitely work that needed to be done. But I also, the woman who was kind of overseeing this program, which has now sort of been disbanded, um, not disbanded, but it's been un, sort of not as funded because funding shifts. Um, but this you woman- Did you why? Um, Honestly, I think like it's kind of typical within these big brands that like money just shifts like from year to year. So it was just sort of like, okay, we're not going to put as much money towards this creator network because we're now going to focus in this direction. So what I do know is that women is a big priority 
for the brand moving into the next year, um, which is exciting to see that again, because I think I think it's always been a, a big focus with Adidas, which has been great, but it's also nice to just see it being the priority and on the forefront. Jesse, um, it sounds like um, in some of these situations, like you look for, you, you keep searching for something that fits what you want to do. And it's not always necessarily there. Like you said, you went to different running groups and ultimately you had you, to create your own and then you get in something good and they shift some money and maybe they shift it back. Um, so, like, does this stuff upset you? Does it frustrate you? Um, and you said that one of your groups, uh, you know, you were, um, something was gnawing at you for a couple of years. And I think like when you're in these, you know, like you said, really male dominated spaces, sometimes you have to fight extra hard just to, you know, have your voice and your vision heard. Has that been um, your experience? And is it, like, what do you think is a, a remedy for this, if, if that's what it is? Yeah, I mean, I think that initially being a female leader in the running, urban running space was um, frustrating often because you just, your voice gets cut out of a lot of things. And whether it's cut out of a video talking about the urban running movement um, or it's ne not being asked to speak on um, topics. And I think that that was something that I definitely dealt with for a lot of years was like- Like in what sort of way? What's, what's a situation where someone did that to you or did it to other women and women of color, or people that you know? Yeah, I mean, so <laughs> for example, um, <laughs> I think often when people would walk into the space that I was co-leading with a male with Black Roses, that they would just look to the male as the leader of the group. Um, and, and I see that over and over again, too. It, and it's not just in that space. It's like in a lot of spaces. But it's like, if it's a man and a woman, it's just like automatically you just go to the man, like they're in charge. Um, and you know, I've experienced that with athletes where they're like questioning if I give them a training plan, they will question it. If my male counterpart who doesn't know as much as me gives them the same plan, they're like, oh, okay, great. You know, and it's just like that kind of stuff is like always, per it's always there. It's like super pervasive. Um, but like even things such as there was a moment where we had created this movement Bridge the Gap, which was like bringing together all these different running communities from these big cities around the world. And there was an anniversary, I don't know if it was like three years or five years, I can't remember, but um, someone had some budget and an agency to make a video about it and talk about like the sort of legacy and history of this movement. And I was someone who was interviewed because I was there from the beginning, from the planning process to like making it happen. And in the end, they just edited me out. So it was all men speaking. And I remember getting the video clip sent to me and I was actually with my team of women waiting to get on the bus to go to DC for this Nike women's half marathon. And I open up the clip and I watch it and it's like totally edited out. So like no voice, you know, and I was just like, oh, fuck. 
and I shot back like a really angry like email and I was just like this is bullshit and I also was like you know the only women that are featured in this short film that is now documenting this movement are girls dancing like on the sidelines of the race like they weren't even you know what I mean like it was like they didn't even highlight women in in a way that felt like powerful but that 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 leads into why we have a lack of women in leadership roles in the running community and particularly amongst like white women minorities like now you know I, I guess I see where you're coming from it's like they don't really validate your experience and your knowledge right like well that's definitely a piece is that um you know if you don't see if you don't see a lot of women as coaches or in leadership roles then you're thinking well I guess they can't be (laughs) you know or they shouldn't be or whatever you know whatever like um but and this is also something I know from from a project that I worked on that was breaking barriers in sport for girls and this was an Adidas project was when they were doing research around why girls drop out of sport because they typically drop out much earlier which is like between 14 and 16 um, much earlier and much at a much higher rate than boys. And so they were doing a lot of research to find out why. And one of the reasons was um, not having female coaches or female mentorship, um, along with not seeing media representation in sports media of women, pro women athletes. And so um, one of the things to me that I think is really important is like uplifting fe- like women coaches like across the board um, so that it can increase like women potentially seeing that as a viable option. But I remember even being also really afraid to become a coach or like think of myself as a coach because I was like, just not going to get respected. Um, Is this something that you think you can work with, with Adidas going forward, given that you're one of the coaches, I think you are the only one in New York. I am the, I'm the head performance coach for Adidas runners, but we have, um, uh, Amira Omar as our mindset coach. We have Lottie Bilderici as our nutrition coach. Um, and we have uh, another woman, Shara Robinson, who is a captain. So we actually skew mostly female, um, on our leadership team, which is pretty amazing. Um, and to have multiple women coaches is like, also really special so that was another thing that really made me like excited to work with adidas that the performance coach for la was also a woman and i was a woman and i was like whoa they hired like head coaches who were women and this is coming from a sportswear brand which felt to me felt significant i think that it, it makes a difference to have women as coaches because i think that females we have different needs you know physically biologically, you know, in athletics. And also I think women coaches understand the pressures that um, say a non-professional athlete who's a female, like the strains that she may have, the responsibility she has trying to juggle um, family, work, life, things like that as well. Yeah, absolutely. And it's also, it is also disrupting a lot of really unhealthy culture that is, that is tied to running. And I think like that's a whole other issue, but um, especially for women, there's been like a lot of super unhealthy, toxic culture around running. Um, 
Like what? Uh, well, <laughs> definitely there was um, a big sort of scandal coming out around the Oregon project. Um, <gasps> oh, uh, with Mary Kane as one of them? Definitely Mary Kane was very vocal mm -hmm. about her experience, but as it was, as it, as, uh, as it has been unfolding, many different women were experiencing um, a super toxic environment around um, unhealthy eating and weight um, expectations that were coming from the head coach of the project. And that was a lot in the media last year, um, but it, but it's not, the thing is it's not uncommon and it's not, um, I don't think people were like super surprised. And so one thing I think has been super interesting is seeing a number of female athletes now becoming coaches. So pro athletes now becoming coaches so that they can coach women and not have, create a similar experience where the expectation is um, unhealthy, like you were saying, unhealthy practices for women in the sport. But yeah, I um, think it's also, it also like kind of brings us to like the way that when that was happening, like in 2019, we focused on like how women, like you were just saying that the, the body issues that, you know, you have to like, they were required to be like hit a certain weight, but female bodies, you know, our bone structure is different so that we can carry children. Our menstrual period needs to be regulated so you can have children. And then just like, we just work differently, carry our body weight differently. So it just shows like you were saying earlier about the certain, the body type of what everyone looks like. And I think now in 2019, we've moved from like the gender aspect to the, safe, the safety aspect of like, you know, people of color being able to run and not get murdered the way like my Aubrey was. So how, do, how did you process the murder and awareness that running is not the same for everyone? Yeah, um, I mean, I think, so my, par my partner of 15 years is um, an African-American man. He's um, Afro-Cuban and Puerto Rican and we've lived together for a lot of years and just experiencing a lot of fear around him being continuously harassed by the police, even though he is a firefighter. So um, oh, wow, really crazy situations that we've been in over and over and over again. And, um, and something as simple as like, we're gonna drive home for Thanksgiving and being pulled over every time, <laughs> every single time. What, is, what um, does that feel like for you when that is happening? Um, I feel helpless, helpless. I feel scared. Um, I, one morning we were sitting at breakfast and he went outside and then got into the back of a cop car and I didn't know what was happening. He didn't tell me what was happening and I just freaked out. And it, it's like, I, you know, constantly worry because I know he is like the number of times he's been pulled over is insane. And like, it doesn't matter that he's a fireman because he's black. So, and it doesn't matter that he's not doing anything wrong because he's black. And just like continuously like experiencing that over time, I think um, when situations like the Ahmad Arbery murder happened, like it's, it's just continuously like heartbreaking. And then at the same time, it's like, 
you know, not surprising because of the society that we live in, which is, I know that it's not safe for a black man to like just go walk down the street or live in his neighborhood or drive his car to work. Um, so I think that situation in particular obviously felt very intense for the running community, I think, because it just highlighted something that maybe a lot of people are not aware of or didn't think about. But I think in, within the running community, we often like see each other as like, oh, we all like to run. So like, we're all the same, like we have all these similarities. But I think that was really eye-opening for people because they were like, no, we're not, we don't experience the same situation. We don't have the same fears and we don't have the same worries. And maybe that's in some ways similar to what the difference between running as a man or running as a woman is like, I think a lot of women are like, yeah, it's not safe. Like we know it's not safe and we're tired of talking about it. Um, and maybe a lot of men are not even aware of that or they're like, well, I've never seen it happen. So I don't, I think you're probably okay. Yeah, I think that's one of the things that when in these conversations, when you bring race into the make race becomes like part of the conversation, people are like, we get the sense that because some people never experience it, they might feel that it's it's not as bad. Mm -hmm. But whereas like for you now, like you are not going to be followed in a store the way that I would be, you know what I mean? But then for you, like in your home life what your partner experiences, like he brings that to you. And then, so how, you said that you feel helpless, like in one way, in what ways does the conversation help you both when you talk about it? Because we challenge people to like, talk about race to people in your inner circle. Cause that's really where the conversation needs to happen. And yeah. then you carry that out into the world. So like you, for example, when do you share the stories that he tells you with your own family, you know, like you grew up in Ohio, you like the oldest of age and, you know, how does that conversation happen with them? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, I think my family, I am the oldest, so my family, um, I think respects and like listens to a lot of what I say often, which is one of the benefits of being older. Um, <laughs> but I, you know, we talk about everything um, and, we don't agree on a lot of things. Actually, there's lots and lots of um, arguments between us on different topics all of the time. And, and that's kind of how I, I was raised, was to be able to argue um, with them. And my dad and I argued endlessly because we did not agree on most things. But there's still like, the importance of having those conversations and I think I was telling someone the other day like one of the benefits of loving someone that you totally disagree with is that you still see that person as someone that you love and so you do listen to them probably a little bit more than you might someone else that you don't have a relationship with and so it's almost been a good thing to grow up in a family where you don't agree on everything because you are able to have these conversations that are uncomfortable and where you don't agree. Your fan that sticks to mind, like 
something that you can think about like as a little example i mean you now living in new york in a blue state and yeah i was gonna say you're in a red state you know what i mean (laughs) your your family's from a red state and now your family moved to another red state you live in a blue state and you're also in an interracial relationship so how is that dynamic at the family discussions yeah um you know i think what's interesting is like my parents have been republican my whole life um and i never was (laughs) even as a teenager. Um, And so I think because I was this like, I'd like to believe because I was this rebellious um, identity within my family that it also encouraged my siblings to like be who they were um, and make their choices. And so within our 10 person family, which is now like much bigger because people have significant others and there's nephews and nieces, like, we we are like across the board like like at we're everything you know like so i think and also like you know my sister-in-law is black and my brother um dated a mexican woman who he married um for 10 years and then my sister's fiance is mexican and so like our family is like really i think a unique mixture of varying um opinions but we at the end of the day like agree to disagree on stuff and um i think that we probably argue the most about politics for sure um but in terms of like one thing i learned from my parents is to look after other people and to care for other people and to help other people um and i think my parents are pretty open-minded in that way um so, and, and that probably also having a lot to do with um, growing up without very much, like growing up pretty poor and like also this, having this like idea of giving back to others makes you feel like maybe richer than you are. And so there's always been this attitude of service, I think within my family. I think that translated to your personality too. I've been riding with Girls Bike NYC. Yeah. Um, so they seem to share the same ethos and the logo. And I've seen, I did see that you were at the beginning. Were you part of the creation of that? Um, how, and I noticed that biking has been, been increasing during the pandemic. Have you, so, I mean, did you create it or was it just a collaboration of ideas? And how have you seen biking as an activity? that can create an inclusive space for people of different cultures, race, gender, you know, identity, things like that. Yeah. So um, I am proud to say that Girls Bike is a sister group of Girls Run. Um, It was started by two members of Girls Run who got super excited about cycling for two different reasons. Um, One is this woman, Kate, who um, was cycling more because she was injured and couldn't run. Kate and Nicole Ricketts. And Nicole, um, I think, just super excited about cycling. And so we had actually started Girls Run back up, but doing it in a very small, intimate way. Um, And Kate came by on her bike and she was just like, you know what, what if we have a bike night? Because I can't really run yet. Um, And so I was like, cool. Like, yeah, let's do it. And 
basically what ended up happening is that it was formed in that way in a very organic manner. Um, but it took a few months for us to decide to make it a sister group um, of girls run. And partly because we wanted it to have the same ethos. And so I, I came for a while and um, I haven't made any of the long ones on the weekend, but I was coming regularly on Tuesdays because also I just wanted to like feel the vibe and see like, does it have the same vibe, which is that like anybody could show up and we're not trying to like blow people out of the water here, but it's like a space where you can like be brand new or you can have experience and it's still fun. And the, the goal really being like community building that you're meeting people, which it was definitely that. And so, um, you know, we sat down and we decided like, let's make it a sister group. Let's give it same logo um but like let's set some sort of ground rules about how it can be the same ish not the same but like have the same sort of energy around it um and that really being that it's it should be a safe space where it's not competitive and people should feel welcome there it did that- it it was because cycling's intimidating um, I don't know if Kate shared with you this one time we were riding Central Park, we were just doing loops. And I heard this mother say to her daughters, she said, look, honey, she says, there are girls who bike too. You can do it too. And it's yes. like, I heard that. And it's funny because a friend of mine, he said he was cycling that same weekend. He says, were you part of this like really large group of girls that were cycling in the park? I said, yeah, why? And he says, no, it was just noticeable. You guys just seemed to look like you had so much fun. Yes. And I said, yeah, it just, I was intimidated by um, cycling with some other men and I just didn't want to do it anymore. And then when I discovered girls, it just felt, and it was so many different types of faces, different body types. That was like another thing. I, a lot of men that I know that cycle are very, they look a certain way and they go mm-hmm. very fast. Mm-hmm. The girls group, they have different looks, um, different styles and different types of bikes. Um, yes yeah people people were showing up with city bikes and they were still still welcome so like that was the whole thing is that we I and I think this is girls run and this is girls bike is like there's gatekeepers to sports and subcultures and like and professions and whatever and they're trying their job is actually keeping a lot of people out so what we're trying to do is like not do that like we don't we want to take like a space that traditionally might've felt exclusive and we want to open it up and give people an opportunity to like, at the very least enter into that space where they can feel comfortable. And then maybe they explore beyond that. So it's like an entry. It can be an entry point for people. It can be, um, you know, hopefully a safe space for people. It can be like with girls run, like I've made some of my best friends there, um, you know, and I think there have been people who have made such deep connections there because it's, the sport is just one piece of it, but um, ideally it's a space where people can do much more than that. And, you know, I think that's, that is the goal. What kind of gatekeepers have you run around, run, run across while trying to coach and even, you know, being involved in all the different crews that you've mentioned, like Bridge Runners, um, Black Roses, what kind of gatekeepers have you found? Yeah, I mean, and I think whether it's an actual person saying this, 
or it is a, it's an energy about a space. It's things like, oh, if you don't run this fast, you're not really a runner, you know, or like if you don't, because you're, you look this way, like you couldn't possibly be like a coach or you couldn't possibly be like leading this group. Um, I think that there are also spaces that are created with like one or two types of people in mind. And while they're not saying, hey, don't show up to this event or this space, they are saying it. And maybe they're saying it by the type of flyer they put out um, that only has one type of person on it um, or by the messaging. And, you know, <laughs> it's as someone who leads groups, from a corporate standpoint and from a community-based standpoint, I think that um, I know there's a lot of things you can do to like invite someone in or to not invite someone in and it doesn't have to be explicit. So. Jesse, I want to ask you about this accessibility from the perspective of an ultra runner because I've seen some, you know, I've been asking our guests a lot about this because it's something that's always irked me or not at me, which is that, you know, nominally uh, ultra running can be done by anyone. And we see that extreme um, distances become less extreme when people, you know, dedicate time and um, some money to them as well. And one thing that's happened in the ultra world is that as it's become more popular, it's become so much more expensive. So you have all these amazing races that are oftentimes um, very pricey to get into and require sometimes even like a in the know, like you have to know someone or you have to find out about it. And I was, I saw that you did the speed project and like, I was curious about that because you mentioned earlier in our podcast that this is, um, you know, sometimes you have to just go on Instagram to find out where something cool is happening. So there are all these elements that I think are on the one hand, very neat, but on the other, they, you know, you always, not you personally, but anyone is running the risk of when something gets very exciting and popular, it, it can have the opposite effect where it starts to close doors because mm -hmm. that, you know, how are you going to get out of the city to, how are you going to fund that? How are you going to find out about something if it's only advertised on Instagram? So I'm wondering, you know, if A, you could just talk a little bit maybe about Speed Project and, or if you want, just tell us, you know, how you think about these things when you're you know, starting the 10th the most amazing thing that you've done to bring people in? Um, well, so to speak on Speed Project in particular, um, the first time I participated was on a team that um, Vasha from Undo Ordinary put together. And um, what was great about it was that it was a group of women, super diverse group of women. It was all women. Um, and it also was... Um, funded and backed by Adidas. So um, what was great was that like, it was not cost prohibitive for people to participate. It was nice that Adidas invested in a women's team, but also in a women's team of non elite runners. So like, we were not going there to win. That's for sure. We were going there to like have this experience that was to like, break some personal barriers, which I think what is what the speed project is. So we 
I was in like a lucky situation with that experience. But to say that I do know the race directors of that particular race and I I've watched them open it up to try to make it more inclusive and more accessible over the years because initially it was like two teams and then it was like no it was one team at first and then it was it was just a project and then it became it became something that more and more people wanted to do so i i think with that race in particular um the goal has been to make it as like accessible to people as they could um because i really don't think they're making hardly any money off of that, to be honest. Um, but it is, it is cost prohibitive when you're thinking of like, how am I going to fly myself there? And then we have to rent the RV and then we've got to take a week off of work and like all these things. So, and I would say, yes, in the world of endurance sports, it can be cost prohibitive to, if you want to get into like ultra running, where you have to travel for it if you don't live in an area that's big and ultra running. Um, also, just to say that I've never really appreciated how the cost of local races has gone up and up and up because um, I feel like the, the answer has always been, well, it costs more money from the city to put these races on. So that's why we have to charge more money for it. But I remember not that long ago, this race cost less than half of that. And so I just don't understand, like, yes, it's exciting. More people are running, but I don't understand how we have to charge like $50 for a 5k run around Prospect Park. And I remember like, I wanted to get my coworkers, I worked at this high school in Brooklyn and I wanted to get my coworkers to come out and do the Jingle Bell jog. And I was like, it's cool. Like we, we work in Brooklyn and it's in Brooklyn and like, we can train for it together. And then I went on the page and it was like $50 to register. And they were like, no way. Like that's so much money. And, and they weren't like invested in running already. So they were just like, I can't spend $50 to like run around prospect park. And I was like, yeah, I can't ask you to do that either. Cause it's like, that's insane. Like it's really ridiculous. And I think that that is another example of gatekeeping too which is like who can afford that like who can afford to do the nine plus one so they can run the new york city marathon like a select group of people can afford that um but there's a lot of people who cannot um and especially probably young people who you would want to be out running um so i think that no but you're totally right i think in our planning of like the different episodes with kind of mapped out with the, the things that we want to talk about and you mentioned gatekeepers and then the financial aspect is also something very real to people like you're saying like especially now like who knows who will we have a job again in next year and those fifty dollars for runner to enter a race that's money for food on the table or like or a metro yeah. or like necessities as in a way I guess he just like the financial aspect of it and like as you mentioned being able to do the speed project and it just i feel like in a way it can it just widens the gap of accessibility like in the same way where like now in 2020 races have been suspended but now like you mentioned like we gave a button up on instagram of the images of people doing this 
you know, miles, trial miles, like miles for trials or whatever you call that. You know what I mean? Like, and that's what we're seeing. So like, oh, so only now the white fast people. I saw those pictures. Running. You know, yeah. they are. And I think I've just seen the, the cross country. Like, no. Yeah, the cross country runs this weekend. I was looking at the girls who participated in predominantly white. Yeah. Yeah. And I think as like a group leader who like we've we haven't reopened Adidas runners this year. Um and it's it's frustrating to me to like see that those images are like flooding like media right now. And I'm like we don't have images of group runs and so we don't have images to combat like i see a huge that. disappearance right now i mean there's a big disappearance this year <sighs> yeah and it's it's frustrating because it's i mean it's just like how media works in general like you, it, it, the feeds are being flooded and i'm like this is what we're seeing we're seeing like specific groups that look a specific way out here doing their thing and then we don't have like we can't like counteract that with alternative like images so yeah and at the same time like i mean i don't want people to be confused like we're not saying that it's wrong to be fast we're just saying that as a sport like everyone should be celebrated because you train just as hard you know, you, you have whatever your why is, you show up and do it. And mm -hmm. I think, like you, when you said, like at the top of the show, like you yourself didn't feel welcome. You didn't feel that you could belong because no one looked like you, like you. Mm -hmm. And then they were like, there's like standards that people say like, well, for you to be a coach, you have to be this fast. Mm -hmm. Be this, you have to, you know, be able to do this and that. And then there's that thing that it just, it just keeps one in the gap of like yeah. what it could be and then even with the images like you know like we are also consumers and i could decide well like if adidas doesn't support women then i won't buy that if like nike doesn't do that then i won't do this and if like i'm trying to think what is the other like big brand company and running i'm like even uh reebok well, back in the day, or even puma you know what i mean well, look at lululemon i mean oh, lululemon exactly always out you know, things like that. Mm -hmm. And I think that's also important. And then I think us as consumers, we can remember that we do have that power to say like, I won't, and it's not, it's not a cancel culture. It's just to say that, why would I put my money into someone who doesn't think of me as valuable as, you know, the woman that can run like a 5k in 17 minutes? Absolutely. I mean, I think we have a, we have a lot of power as consumers. Um, and I hope that people continue to recognize that, that it, where you do choose to consume, like you, that is where you have some power as well. So, um, yeah, I mean, honestly, I think like earlier the question was posed like about seeing things change or like things that are frustrating. And I think what can be frustrating is to see us kind of cycle back into like almost like move backwards um, a bit. And it kind of feels, it doesn't, I don't want to say it feels that way right now, but I also think like we, we're always at risk of that, um, of things kind of like turning again. And so 
Um, just like defaulting to the position where it's always the, the skinny white guy who runs the show for running in the U.S. And that's the way it always is. And now we have to fight three times as hard to get anyone else there. Yeah, We're going to fight even harder because I think, as Inez said, races have been canceled. So if you think about how many races are being deferred, right? So New York is deferred till next year. A couple of other races are deferred. Now you think about how many people are going to be competing for the minimal spots that are left. And then mm -hmm. now you're going to talk about another barrier. So you're going to see people who, who are so excited to run these races this year. It might've been their first one. And then they start to drop off because they're just like, you know what? I've got more important things to do. I have to recover my life. Mm -hmm. um, and like, interestingly enough, like I did see an emergence of fitness, you know, mm -hmm. like in the beginning last year and people were excited about New York's 50th anniversary of the marathon. So COVID-19 has a huge impact um, on us this year, but particularly you see the greatest um, percentage of fatalities amongst black and Latinos. And we talk about um, hand washing and mask wearing, you know, we talk about the big issues, but how come nobody's talking about health? we see a lot of um, comorbidities in these populations, but mm -hmm. we're not promoting health. And now that you, now that sport is even more difficult, I, I mean, this is going to, I don't know, how do we, how do, how the run leaders going to react to this? I'm, I'm looking forward to the, to seeing what's going to happen for 2021. Yeah. I, well, I think, Two thoughts that I have around that. One is um, that there has been an explosion of people running because it was like the only thing you could do in the beginning. Um, and so I saw so many people, either people I knew from my life who I would never have thought would ever go running, um, out running, starting a running practice, or, you know, just noticing people out running for the first time. And you could kind of tell by their clothing um, because they dressed the way that I dressed in the beginning, which is like non-running shoes and like non like technical clothes, like just like regular stuff that you're like, I think this is good enough. And um, seeing that made me really hopeful because I was like, oh, there's going to be, there will be another boom of people that are running for different reasons. And I think a lot of people were running for probably mental health um, this year because they were just like, I got to get out of the house and also, I got to boost my immune system or like, I just can't be in this tiny New York apartment for the whole day. Um, so I think that's felt really hopeful, like just seeing like all these people out running all different types of people. Um, what I hope is that that continues. So like, I think when people get into running, it's usually there's some catalyst, something was like this, I got to do this thing, whether it's like, I want to meet people or like, I literally have to for my health or like for mental health or something. But then I think once people get interested in it, it does spark other things like starting to care about your nutrition. Cause like you start to learn, the more you do it, you start to learn, like, there are things I used to do before that I can't do now which is like, I can't drink alcohol before I go running or like you could, but you probably didn't feel good. So like might cut down on some of your drinking um, or like I need I to put down that pack of cigarettes. Exactly. 
I've seen that happen. You know, I've seen, like, I've seen a lot of different things where people really made dramatic life, like overall health changes, but it took time. Um, and so I guess I'm hopeful that this will hopefully spark like more healthy choices for people. Um, because if they stick with it, it usually does. Um, but that, and I would say what's been cool about working with Adidas is that our running programming has a holistic um, framework. So it's not just running. We have a mindset coach that teaches meditation and mindfulness. We have a nutrition coach that talks about um, nutritional habits and running. We have a strength coach. We have um, one of the pillars for us is like service and give back. So within being funded by a brand like Adidas gives you the opportunity to kind of do some of those dream goals that like you want to do, but now you've got some funding behind it. So what's been interesting is like we had a running mentoring program called Adidas Beyond where we had running mentors working in three different high schools, um, two in Brooklyn and one in Washington Heights. And we would go three times a week in the morning and run with students. Um, so it's like, hopefully, um, you know, I feel super hopeful about having opportunity to like provide a lot of different health things outside of just running, like running is kind of in the center, but then like around it are all these other um, ways of taking care of yourself. And I'm happy that we can provide that for free to people because I well, think- Well, Jesse, um, yeah. one of those ways is art therapy, perhaps. We were wondering yeah. if that um, intersects with your running at all and we'll get you to the hot mic but we couldn't get through without talking about you know your art yeah for sure um, yeah so I think a lot of my career so I'm an art therapist a lot of my career has been working with young adults um, I worked 10 years at an alternative to incarceration program um, as the art therapist there and then four years in high school. Um, so I really have been pretty passionate about like young adults. And um, when I stepped up to coaching full time, it was a shift for me um, because I had been previously working full time and then coaching full time. And so I was doing both at the same time. And it was like almost like moonlighting, moonlighting running and art therapist by day and those two identities were kind of separate. Um, so what's been interesting for me, um, actually within the last two years is like identifying myself as both of those things and how they fit together. Um, and so I've been doing essentially like private practice that involves movement and um, creativity together. And I think with Adidas runners, like, I bring a lot of my knowledge and experience as a group therapist um, to that work, but I also try to take that therapist hat off there. Um, but it, it for sure like informs the way that I work with people and the way that I work with my team. Um, but I'm an artist myself. I, I do create work that has largely been about running over the last few years. Um, but yeah, it's, it's an interesting balance 
mental health and physical health. And I think, to be honest, like, I feel that the two are similar to me because it's like giving people tools. Art therapy is giving people tools to um, be creative and express themselves and live their healthiest self. And I think running is the same. It's really, and I see my role has always been to like give people tools um, and help facilitate them being able to use those tools across their life. I think Jazz did the hot mic already, Jesse, without even knowing that she was doing it. <laughs> but unfortunately, Jesse, you're gonna have to do it again. <laughs> so now you are officially in the, the hot mic section of, of our show. Cool. Where uh, awesome. So I'm gonna I'll you'll get this. two minutes of interruptive time. Great. Uh, Jamie, you be the, the, the timekeeper. I'm gonna start the my stopwatch. Okay. Because I need a break from that, definitely. <laughs> uh, so who's gonna count her down? Okay, I'm gonna keep an eye on the timer. Ready? Three, two, one. Okay, cool. So I'm gonna take this opportunity just to talk about like hope and next steps for folks. Cause I think I talked a lot about like the past, um, but I think that, you know, where we're at right now and I sort of just touched on it is like an exciting time where through adversity, there is opportunity. Um, and so adversity being a lot of different things um, that came up in 2020, like starting with the pandemic, um, or even before that, it's been like the last four years, to be honest. But just to say that in situations where you don't see what needs to be there or what you think needs to be there is an opportunity to create that space. Um, and I think that's always been the way I've kind of approached projects is like looking for what's missing, looking for who's missing um, and trying to ask why and asking those questions of yourself too. So, you know, I spoke about this a few months ago, um, being, you know, a white woman in leadership, my privilege is absolutely that I can move around in a lot of spaces um, because of that. And because of that, it also gives me the opportunity to help create spaces for other people. Um, so I would encourage anyone who's listening, if you are, in a leadership position um, or you are in a gatekeeper position, maybe you didn't realize you are, um, to really take a deep look at why you're there and what's your purpose there and then who also isn't there and in what ways can you contribute to like providing a platform for someone else who is different than you. Or if you're creating a space and whether that space is a club or a race or community that in creating that space, like who's missing, um, why are they missing and what are you doing that's preventing those people from being in that space? And I think that's something I need to ask myself in everything that I'm working on. Um, and I would encourage people who are in positions of leadership to do the same. Time? 2.25. Yay! Our record stands. <laughs> Nobody ever just does two minutes. Yeah, 
Jesse, thanks uh, for coming on. It's been a really special episode. Um, you've given us such amazing um, thoughts and ideas about um, inclusivity, accessibility, art, um, broadening the world of running. So once again, a very special thanks to you. And of course, a special thanks to my co-hosts, Inez and Jamie. And lastly, but not least, you, the listener. See you next time on Let's Get Uncomfortable. Thanks for listening to Let's Get Uncomfortable. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, rate, and review us on the App Store and follow us on Spotify.